From Rhythm and Light in Chicago, I'm Steve Ordauer, and welcome to Rhythm of Life. Today on the show, we explore the remarkable career of the vital and trailblazing filmmaker, Gordon Quinn. He is the artistic director and founding member of Cartemquin Films and has been making documentaries for over 50 years. The late movie critic Roger Ebert called his first film, Home for Life, an extraordinarily moving documentary, utilizing the technique of cinema verite to investigate and critique society by documenting the unfolding lives of real people. Gordon Quinn has mentored many filmmakers over the years, some of whom we will hear from in this episode, establishing a legacy in this regard, as well as a home where they can make high-quality social-issue documentaries. The accomplished filmmaker and host of this show, Bob Hercules, sat down with Gordon to discuss his career, recorded live at a very special event held in Chicago that brings filmmakers together called The Doc Talk Show, produced and hosted by fellow filmmaker and teacher Jeff Spitz. So tonight's program involves some terrific filmmakers and a mentor. And the filmmakers who are here today all appreciate this mentoring that they've gotten from Gordon Quinn. And I want to introduce the filmmakers by name. Bob Hercules, who will be interviewing Gordon. We have the two chairs for that purpose. And we have Jenny Shi, who made Finding Ying Ying. And we have the editor of Finding Ying Ying with us, John Farbrother. And we have Kevin Shaw, who has the hottest ticket now in Chicago with his film, Let the Little Light Shine. And we'll be looking at a clip from each of the filmmakers' work, but we're starting off with somebody who we can genuinely say has been a friend and mentor to documentary filmmakers for generations. And while he is a mentor, he's also a phenomenal filmmaker. Gordon has influenced a whole culture of storytelling in nonfiction that takes a lot of guts. And it's quite different through Cinema Verite and the social inquiries that have happened through Chicago filmmakers, led principally by Gordon's example. Gordon used cameras to investigate and explore and because he didn't know what was already there. And I love this about Gordon's curiosity and passion to learn and share experiences as they unfold in the lives of other people. It's such a different thing to do cinema verite, where you're following real people, ordinary people, not celebrities, whose lives turn out to be truly full of drama, pathos, poetry, and heart-wrenching social issues that are lived. So Gordon, I want to just thank you so much. You've changed a lot of lives without ever asking for anything from us. You've been a terrific mentor to me personally and to many people in this room. Thank you, thank you. Come on up here. Let us give you a round of applause. And I want to bring up Bob Hercules, who is the founder of Media Process Group, also an outstanding filmmaker, and Bob is going to be interviewing Gordon. Uh, Gordon and Bob have worked together on a film, and you'll see a clip of it. It's called A Good Man, and I think this is just a great note to start with, even though you won't be showing that film first. These are good people, 
and you're good people, and it is not easy to find that in the world, and we really appreciate both of you. So thank you, and I want to turn it over to you after I just um, take care of one omission. My name's Jeff Spitz. <laughs> I love doing this, and the Doc Talk Show started in 2016. Thank you all for being here, and Bob, I'm turning it over to you. Thank you. Let's have a big hand for Jeff Spitz. And um, I think this is the first in-person doc talk show in a, almost two years. So we're all here finally again. Yeah. Let me just uh, introduce Gordon a little bit. For, I know a lot of you know Gordon and know all about him, but some people don't know about Gordon. Gordon is the co-founder and artistic director of Cartemquin Films. Cartemquin, of course, is one of the great documentary houses in the country, really. They've had so much... So many great films have come through, and Gordon has produced, directed, mentored so many people that have come through the doors of Cartemquin. Um, he's also, some people don't know this, but he's also been an advocate his whole life and an activist, really, for independent media. And that, I don't think you get much attention for that because it's kind of like behind the scenes, but it's very important. I think you were involved in the creation of ITVS, even, which is yeah. profound, really, for filmmakers like us. Um, also, Gordon is an expert on fair use, which again is kind of under the radar, but for us, it means so much for, uh, to be able to, to use things and to, and to not fight all kinds of legal fights and pay millions of dollars for footage that we should be able to, sh to use and show. So thank you for your long battle on the fair use front. Right. And also, just finally, the introduction is that Gordon, as Jeff Spitz, has mentored so many filmmakers over the years. And one thing I will say, because he's looked at many of my films and done rough cut critiques, is that there's hardly anybody I know that could zero in on story. And that's so important to me and to all of you and all the other filmmakers. I think you and Jerry, Jerry Blumenthal was Gordon's partner for many years who passed away a few years ago. The two of them, when they did a critique, they zeroed in on story and they could really help filmmakers think about the story in a new way or was it working, what wasn't working, etc. So really just want to say thank you for all those times you watched all those rough cuts. Well, thanks. Thanks for the words, Bob. Sure. I want to jump into this. Um, I, Gordon uh, was born in Washington, D.C., but he lived most of his younger years in, in Virginia. And you were growing up at a time in the middle of Jim Crow, and kind of in the South, really, Virginia. And I just wondered uh, what the, how, how that affected you when you were growing up in the midst of that time in Virginia. What was that like, and what, how did that help shape you? Yeah, great question. I mean, my parents were both from Boston. I'm in Arlington, Virginia, going to segregated schools. This is the 1950s by law. And I'm one of the few kids in my class, basically for a lot of reasons, but where my parents came from, I found out later in life my dad had actually been in the Communist Party. And so I was for integration. Oh, but okay. I remember when we had my social studies teacher, there would be a debate, you know, and she would, and there would be those of us who were for integration, which was like four kids, and the rest of the class on the other side for segregation. Was it a mixed class, or was it all? Uh, all well, 
the important thing to know about the East Coast segregation, mm-hmm. it only applied to black people. Mm-hmm. President of my senior class, I was just telling the story earlier, was Jim Hamasaki, kid in front of me in Spanish class, was uh, Carlos from Venezuela. He got a C, I flunked. First mm. year Spanish, he thought it would be easy. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was, it, its roots were in slavery, and that really is what that was about. Mm. And so that had a lot to do, I think, with shaping me because I was like an outsider in many ways. I remember, it's kind of relevant now with what's going on in Ukraine. I remember in 56, the Hungarian Revolution, Mm -hmm. and it was like, finally, I'm going to be on the popular side because I felt if the tanks were in the streets against the people, something's wrong. Yeah. And there was going to be one of these debates in that class, and I got the flu, and I couldn't go to school. Oh, I, bummer. Was just, I was heartbroken, you know, my, my chance to be on the popular side. But I think it did, you know, kind of, you know, we all have our traumas from high school, but I think that it, it taught me to stick by my guns and that if you fight for things, you can win things. I mean, you talked a little bit about media advocacy, and mm-hmm. I'm a great advocate for the younger generation, it's like we have to make this field what it should be and what we want it to be. And we won some battles over the years. We did. Decisive battles. Uh, and really changed the, the industry. Jeff was talking about, uh, you know, Netflix. And I think that years ago, somebody asked me, I was on a panel or something, and they said, what does PBS want? because we were working with PBS. I said, that's the wrong question. What do you want to do? And how are you going to make PBS want what you want to, the story you want to tell? Right. That's the question. And that's, yeah. Not not forcing you to make something or shape something in a way that wasn't really what your your true passion was, but but instead turn the tables on it and say, this is what we're doing. You should want these programs. And, independent and strategically, films. how do we, how do we make them want that? Yeah, you know, that's great. You uh, eventually found your way up to Chicago, and went to the University of Chicago. And I wondered, uh, just how did that happen? And what, why Chicago? Why did you go to the University of Chicago? What you know, was... it 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 was the right school for me, but it was sort of an accident. Uh, I thought I wanted to go. I grew up in the suburbs. I knew I hated the suburbs. I thought I wanted to be in a rural area. You know, maybe I wanted to be a farmer. I had all these romantic <laughs> I notions. I can't see you as a farmer. Yeah, somehow. me neither. <laughs> Uh, but I had these ideas, you know, and I was on my, I went out to see, uh, my dad was in Chicago for some kind of conference or something, convention, and I went on to Grinnell uh, oh, okay. and looked at Grinnell. And, There's some Grinnellites here. And Yeah, and they were, you know, this was 1960, 59, they were having a panty raid on campus, <laughs> and I was like, maybe this isn't the school for me. And then my dad <laughs> tells me. been the school for a lot of people, but not Yeah, you. well, it was, you know. Anyway, he tells me to go check out. He had done some graduate work at the University of Chicago. We never finished because it was the Depression. So why don't you just go down there and take a look at it? And I went down, and I met with someone, and they kind of told me about the program, and that was it. Hmm. It was the only place I wanted to go. It was my top choice. Hmm. Uh, And I think I was in the lowest... You know, I didn't. Everyone I knew in college had a scholarship except me. I was in that <laughs> lowest. They let the final, the, the you know. Uh, you just but, got under the under the wall. In yeah, time. but I I loved it, and they didn't have. I'd already gotten interested in film, 
but they didn't have any film programs. I took whatever novels into film, you know, they had. But I studied literature and mm. philosophy and history. And, you know, when I go and speak at a liberal arts college, they, you know, sometimes they, they like me there because someone will ask, well, where'd you go to film school? I never went to film school. Mm. I learned as an apprentice. But I use what I learned in college every day in my work because I studied the liberal arts. I studied what it is to have an argument, to tell a story. Uh, you know, those are the things that we're all really about on the highest level. And so it was a great, a great education. Now Judy Hoffman is down there actually teaching right. film production, which is amazing. To yeah, me. <laughs> they actually have that now. Yeah, I mean, my... The, we did a film when we were students called The College, and I was doing the sound, and I no one had taught me when you do sound, you, you know, the VU meter should go all the way up to the red. You want to record it at the highest level you could, you know, but I thought, no, it sounds so much better if I keep it way down here. And of course, then it was going to be mixed, in, you know, so I really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, because there were, you know, but then I did get into started working for people and and learned more as an apprentice. What what uh, attracted you to film, since there wasn't even a film program, it's, it's you somewhat know, unlikely. I'd, se I'd seen some movies that really moved me, uh, mm -hmm. feature films. You know, He Who Must Die, mm -hmm. which I've never re by Jules Dessin, and I've never revisited that movie mm. because I'm sure I'd be t uh, disappointed. <laughs> But I saw some other films that, that really... And but then not documentaries, but the features. first I'd seen some documentaries, okay. and I, I liked them, but the one that sort of... I saw Happy Mother's Day by Ricky Leacock oh, yeah. and Joyce Chopra mm -hmm. uh, about the, these quintuplets that are born, and I saw that documentary that sort of turned into something else. They thought they were making mm -hmm. one film, and it turned into something else. It was verite. Because I, they followed the story. They followed the story, right. and I saw that, and it was just like, that's what I want to do. Um, I knew, mm. I think it was, I was with Doc Films, and it was mm. first or second year. We mm -hmm. saw it in the basement of Goodspeed, where Doc Films was at that era, and it was like, yeah, that's it. That's what I want to do. And that was a very exciting time for film, for Doc Filmmaking, because the cameras had started to become smaller and you could do handheld shooting and it's hard for us to imagine in the old days the cameras were so huge you'd basically have to have a tripod and so that was i think that was a revolutionary change and then it brought about those people like Maisel's brothers and, and they Leacock were and, yeah and know. they were creating the cameras literally yeah. creating them and designing mm -hmm. them and uh, you know we this is jumping ahead a few years, but I was working for a guy, Mike Shea, and he brought back to Chicago the first Leacock Penny Baker camera. Oh, okay. So we had the first crystal controlled, no wire between the sound person oh, it was and wireless. the uh, yeah, wireless okay. crystal control. So you really had camera. mobility. Yeah, ability. and that dance, you know, yeah, that ballet sure. between the camera person yeah. and the sound person. And I was working for Shea doing sound, and mm -hmm. I saw how important this were. And then a few years later, when Temner and I founded Cartempwin, my friend at the university, Danny Auerbach, who was a physicist, and I was explaining to him this technology and everything. He says, well, you've, you've got the camera. I had a general camera conversion, you know, an Oricon conversion. He says, I can make you a power supply for that that'll mm. be, you know, that'll fit right on the camera like mm. theirs. And for a few hundred dollars. And I was like, Shea paid $20,000 for his camera. And this is in the 60s, a huge amount of money. 
And I'm like, well, I don't know, Danny, you know, but we, we did it. He built <laughs> it, it worked. and we used it for years. And that's if anybody wants to see a uh, YouTube video about it uh, that uh, uh, Morgan Johnson made when she was mm -hmm. an intern. It's called Camera One, Cartemquin ah. uh, Camera One. And you can see like a little three, five minute film about that camera. But we basically built our own. And it wasn't as elegant. You know, Shays had all the electronics mm -hmm. inside and everything. Mine was hanging off the back. But I used it for years, yeah. You know, the I, I was looking at this thing. And... <laughs> I know you guys all work with a, a DSLR, and if you look at Keith's camera work or yeah. you look at my camera work, one of the things you'll notice is we're really pretty steady. Even yeah. for an old guy, I'm pretty steady. <laughs> right on. And the secret is we've got this big thing up on our shoulder. Doesn't really matter how much weight it is because it's on our body and it's balanced, and we have that third point of contact, which is looking through an eyepiece, not looking at a little flip-out screen. So just think about that sometimes. I'm a big fan of this shape it in a camera. It focuses your eye more because it's an eye cup. Yeah. Versus a versus a little screen. Screen and yeah. it's and it's connected to your head. I mean, it's it's you know it it helps you to be steady. Right. Forces you. Right. So how did you uh, start Cartemp? First of all, tell us the name and how the name came about, because it's a great story. There's but a, also, yeah. how did you decide to form a, a video, a film, excuse me, a film collective? Well, by that time, I had met Jerry Temner, the guy I was going to ultimately uh, form uh, the company with, and another friend of ours, Stan Carter. And we would joke about having a film company someday called mm -hmm. Kartempkin, putting the three names together. We thought it sounded like Potemkin, the famous Russian film. Right. Uh, stupid idea. Uh, <laughs> don't ever do that. Uh, you know, take something that people can spell and pronounce. And, you know, I, I've been spelling that name for like, you know, over 50 years for people. Uh, but that was where it came from. So it was Carter, Temner, and Quinn. Quinn. Cartem Quinn. Right. Cartem yeah, Quinn. sounds like Potemkin. Right. We did form a little company right after college and started making these verite uh, documentaries. Carter left in the first, really in the first year. Mm. Temner had to go. He was starting to have a family, and he actually mm. had to make some money. Mm. So he moved on a few years later. But we made all those early films, you know, Home for Life, Thumbs Down, uh, Acquiring Nuns, which is mm. the one that sort of people still show today yeah. and get some attention, all came from that early period. But our vision really came out of the University of Chicago. I had been exposed to John Dewey and Dewey's philosophy and his mm -hmm. writings about democracy. And I, my BA paper, I, I quit while I was ahead. I never went to graduate school. I love being an undergraduate. Uh, was titled Cinema Verite in a Democracy. And Cinema Verite Democracy? In a Democracy. In a Democracy. And okay. what I was thinking about, what I was writing about, is the role for this kind of media and this kind of storytelling and the role that documentary can play within the democratic process. Mm. And that was my BA paper, and that was really why we founded Cartemquin. Mm. You know, we came out of this overheated intellectual environment, and we were, you know, we wrote this article. Uh, we had a, a theory of filmmaking, which 
you know, I look at it now and it's like, okay, a little over the top cinematic <laughs> social inquiry, you know, and we have right. a published paper somewhere about that. But one of the things that a reason I think we're still here 50 years, 50 some years later, quite a bit over 50 years. It is, getting close to 60 at this point. Yeah, is, is that we didn't, Cartempo, it's not like we had this philosophy and then we stuck with it. Mm -hmm. It's, we were dialectical. We were interact, just as you are when you make a documentary, you interact with the world, you interact with something that's happening in front of the camera, and that changes your strategy, it changes your thinking, because reality is impinging upon whatever theories and vision you have for mm -hmm. the film. You have to kind of take into account where the story wants to go. And as an institution, I think we've done that over the years. We, you know, we, within the first five years we had evolved into a collective where we're all reading Mao and you know we were gonna we we're part of the revolution and we we're gonna change the world and you look at some of those films you know last Pullman car uh, you know Chicago Maternity Center film they're very far away in some ways from cinema verite they're there they have an argument they're mm -hmm. polemical they are films to be made to be a part of and to work for the people who are trying to make the revolution, so right. to speak. And it's in the heart of the 60s as well. So I'm sure that was part of yeah, the Yeah, we were of we were a part of that. And the collective was, you know, it was a combination of people who came out of filmmaking background and people like Richard Schmeekin, uh, who went on to be involved in the uh, times of Harvey Milk uh, and, you know, was an editor and had that background. But some of the people who were most active were like teachers and union organizers and mm. people like that. So it was kind of this this group of people who saw media as having a role to play in that kind of social context. Why did you decide to, one of your first films was Home for Life, which was about a nursing home, and I thought it's interesting that people in their early 20s decided to make a film about that. Uh, well, and the irony your... is that's where I am in my life right now almost, <laughs> you know, it's like Everything really. Everything full circle. Yeah, right. but um, opportunity. Uh, yeah. Tamner got the opportunity, and this, uh, you know, the Drexel home had some money, and mm -hmm. he created, you know, pitched them on the idea of our making this verite film and giving us the run of their home to do mm -hmm. whatever they want. But it was really that opportunity, and I was working in New York as an editor uh, with Howard Alk, who I had apprenticed with, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, I really wanted to come back to Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I came back and we made this film, and it was kind of the founding of Cartemquin. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also had been editing, and I continued to edit uh, film for many years. It's how I used to make my living too. But Home for Life was a chance to be to shoot. Mm. I'd done a little bit of shooting, but nothing really major. The, so Home you were the Life. primary photographer on that, right? Yeah. yeah. But it, it was, you know, it was uh, a film in an institution, uh, and I think we also learned some valuable lessons on that. You know, we 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 thought if we made a film that held a mirror up to society. Just show people the reality. That will sort of lead to social change. Mm. What we hadn't really understood was power relationships, mm. that you have to pay attention to who has power and who doesn't. And so with Home for Life, we thought it was going to start a 
conversation in America and a fundamental thinking about how we deal with the elderly in our society. That's not really what happened. Film was quite successful. It was used a lot. It was used to improve old age homes. That was it, that you was know. It. Well, you and so something came. So out it was it. something, yeah. but we saw that, and and I think that influenced the collective period too, where we realized you always have to be rethinking how you confront with the historical period that you're in mm -hmm. and the society that you're in, and you know, in in our early work, I really look back and I, I you know, and in that. A paper that we published, Cinematic Social Inquiry, it's like we weren't paying attention to power relationships. Mm. And then eventually you and Jerry and the others got more involved in labor organizing films and films about labor, including labor's long descent, as, it, as we've seen. So how did that, how did you shift a little bit into doing, you did Taylor Chain 1, Taylor Chain 2, and The Last Pullman Car. Pullman Car. And Taylor Chain, those both both those films were about labor negotiations, and they were largely, not exclusively, but largely verite films yeah. about that process. And it's interesting the cameras in there, in a place that you really wouldn't expect a camera to be. We in Taylor Chain Two is literally about the labor negotiations. We are in with the company and the union, right? Right inside. We're the first ones who have filmed that process in the U.S. It had been done in Canada. And what, you know, I had started going to Gary back even in the 60s. In the Gary, early, Indiana. Gary, Indiana. Okay. In the early days, of, Staunton Lynn had mm. a program for young people down there. Uh, it was called the Writer's Workshop. It was mm. largely people who were the sons and daughters of steel workers and people okay. from the mills. They, they were, you know, came out of these mill families and they had this workshop. And I kind of became a part of that. And that drew me into... Uh, this labor, you know, a, a, an early thing we did, Where's I.W. Abel and Half Inch Video, mm. was to be uh, an advocacy, really an advocacy film mm -hmm. for a rank and file union group. But, you know, it, I, early on I wanted to do some things about labor and thought it was a, you know, a good way to kind of engage with, uh, you know, the working class and that kind of thing. And, you know, it was... The two Taylor Chain films were actually done almost 10 years apart. We did the first one about a strike that the rank and file goes out about the, you know, goes on strike against uh, the company, but they don't have permission from the union. So it's also, or they mm. stay out on strike. I'm sorry, the union has Stayed agreed to go back. Beyond what the union yeah, wants. Yeah, and so right. the staff man from the union, you know, when he saw the film, he was like, yeah, 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 I know you guys think I'm a bit of a stuffed shirt, but that's my life. That's my real life, <laughs> right. and you've captured what my life is. And we wanted, at that time, we really wanted the steel workers. It was a steel worker local. We wanted the union endorsement for our film. And he said, you know, I'll take you guys to Pittsburgh, and we'll try to get the endorsement for the film, even though he comes off not, not great in the film. And he did. And my argument to the steelworkers, uh, to a guy who later became the president, was, you know, you have a problem in labor. P 
people think it's a lot of fat guys in the back room making a deal and selling people out. What you see in Taylor Chain 1 is democracy in action. You see people voting and arguing and sort of being totally engaged on making decisions about what's going to have consequences in their own lives. It's, it's a, you know, a very edgy democratic process, and people criticize it, too. Why mm. did we have an open vote? I fell intimidated, you know. Right. Other people, you know, because they raised their hands. And I said, that's what you need. It's not, you think it's dirty laundry, but that's what you need to go against the, and they gave us their endorsement. They put it in the Steelworker newspaper, which at that time went to a million three Steelworkers across the country. Wow. It was when, yeah, and it was it was great. And then ten years later, this same staff man says, "Hey, we're in labor negotiations. The, you know, the recession. The plant is on the verge of clo- closing. I think I could get you into the actual negotiations mm. that are yeah, going those on. Are, those are fascinating yeah. scenes to be. Then yeah. you, uh, then you, uh, in that same period, you decided to do a film about the." Pullman uh, car factory, which was going to close down, which would be devastate, which was devastating to the Pullman community. Uh, how did you? Let's actually, maybe we'll show the clip of okay. Pullman, and then sure. we'll talk about it. I'll tell you how we got involved. Yeah, okay. it's called the last Pullman car. We got to have a national movement against the shutdowns. Can we just tell the country and the and the communities to go to hell and just close it down no. and make a ghost town no. out of it? If they think that the membership is going to sit there, lay down and die, and give up virtually everything that the labor struggle has always done, they've got to be crazy. We have to have a government and our company behind us. Then we're willing to stand up and work and fight for our rights, and our rights is to work. (laughs) Out of all the things that George Pullman and his establishment did, it seems like today they still got the last laugh because all the money and all the billions of dollars that they made, they shipped it overseas somewhere to let somebody else build the cars for all the Americans to ride on. And all the Pullman workers, no matter how much time they had, or how to work here. And so in essence, he still got the last laugh, took the money, and ran. Well, I don't want so that's the end of the film. The end of the film, yeah. But, uh, and that's the the woman singing is Barbara Dane. Uh, not, yeah. People know who she is. And there's a new film coming out about her. Uh, and she she took this old classic song and adapted it to uh, what we did right. for us for this film. So keep an eye out for the Barbara Dane film. I should know the title of it, but I don't. One thing about that film, I remember I had just moved to Chicago and was kind of interested in labor, and I saw that film, and it just kind of blew me away. And because you um, weaved the present-day stuff that's going on in the present with a a whole history, really, but you wove it in, so it's not like just a, you know, first there's this and then there's this, but it was beautifully woven, the, the backstory, the story of how Pullman started in the 18, late 1800s with George Pullman, and then, but weaved it in with the modern day closing of the last car yeah. leaves the, you know. I mean, we, we essentially tell the history of the rise of industrial unions and the CIO right. and all of that, and the rise of monopolies and, and conglomerates. Uh, you know, we, we 
put cram that whole history into an hour movie. And the, the way we got into it, you know, to go back to what you were asking me before, Hubie, we were approached by a group of workers from Pullman. We were approached mm-hmm. by the union local, and they said, we're fighting to save our jobs. It's a great story. You should follow our mm. story. So it was their idea. It was their oh, idea that's cool. to make the movie. Oh. And we start, but it was, you know, we had to, the union leaders were into it, but we actually had to win the kind of confidence of the workers. So I remember we had a film festival down there, and we showed, you know, uh, Harlan County, I remember oh, showing, wow. and we showed some That's documentaries cool. so that they could understand what ah, we were about. Interesting. And then we kind of built this relationship with the local. And as we thought we would follow their struggle, that's where mm-hmm. we began. And they were going to these demonstrations and things. But pretty early on, we realized, oh, they're going to lose. There's yeah. no way. The plant's yeah. going to be too much closed. against them. And yeah, the, and they the, knew. The nature of they, our society. Yeah. Had, and so we really felt, as we had with the Chicago Maternity Center story, where the same thing happened, we had to broaden the story to explain the larger social forces and power relationships that were at work so that people who were going to struggle around these issues in the future would understand what they're up against mm. and would understand what those... So that's why the film, you know, the film is an argument. The film is, is, is a, uh, a polemic. You don't quite see it here. But, you know, we're coming from cinema verite, you know, in, in some of our early films, like Thumbs Down, I look at it now and it's like, oh, we've got all these awkward intertitles. We, you know, no narration. We weren't right. going to have a narrator, blah, 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 blah. But you blah. do have a narrator in this last, film. We have That's a very right. engaged narrator right. and a very, right. and so. And it's needed, I think. In yeah, this absolutely. Case. Yeah. And we, that's what I'm getting at, that we yeah. knew that we couldn't tell, we couldn't keep making the same film over and over again. We had to adapt our storytelling techniques to the needs of the story that needed to be told. Right. So it's a very different uh, kind of film. That's a great film. film. It's a, you know, it shows what's about to happen, which was the collapse, really, of the labor yeah. movement. I wanted to jump to the film Gollum, which is one of my favorite films of yours. Um, it's a film about Leon Gollum, the, the artist, who's a very political artist, and how to just briefly, because we're going to start running out of time. Yeah, okay, we're going to go quicker. Yeah. Um, how did how did you get involved? We'll, we'll talk about it for a second, then we'll show the clip. Yeah, Golub was Jerry and I both had always been interested. He had been married to many years for to to, a, to an artist, and we were both interested in the role that art and the arts play in a democratic process. Right. And so here is this artist, and we had someone. Who, who came to us through Peter Gilbert, who was a guy who had seen some of our other work. He said, oh, I want to back a movie with you guys. He was mm. going to give us like a third of the Just money. Just the guy you want to meet. Uh, well, he's gone. <laughs> he's dead. Uh, there, I could tell you some stories later, but yeah. Anyway, for the- he, he wanted to back us. And uh, yeah, not like the guy... This is a slight digression, but somebody once did walk in the door at Cartemquin. And he wanted his life story told. And we explained it's very expensive and film and blah, 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 blah. And he came back like a week later with like a bag of money, you know. And we were like, I don't think so. We, we got to, you know. He, wow. he, I, his, his name wasn't Corleone, but we got that vibe. <laughs> uh, and anyway, th- this guy wanted to back us. And we, we knew the kind of guy he was. What could we do that where... We, what we're passionate about 
be, you know, labor wasn't going to be it for him. You know, we could right. see that. But he did have this interest in art. Mm -hmm. And so we went, Golub was having a show in Chicago. We went with him and we were just all knocked out. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, okay, this is it. Jerry already knew who Golub, mm -hmm. you know, knew about him as an artist. And I, you know, every 10 years or so, I like to do something that looks at art and artists, how it gets made, mm -hmm. and the role that it can play in a democracy. That's really how it came about. Let's show the clip, this a little piece from the film Gollum. Logically, I'm safely inside this very nice museum and everything, but there's something that really puts these things on the edge. You can't just sort of look at that and say, oh, that's an interesting picture and walk on. You can't do that. I guess the image just goes into you. And maybe it has its effect on you and it may make a difference in something that I do a day or a week or a year from now. You really can't see it on TV. I mean, all the nuances, the, uh, you just can't, you have to see it in person. It's very moving, you tell the artist that. I'm not gonna do it this way. I think we're gonna put a pistol in here. Okay. All right, I'll show you the kind of gun I want. Something like this, okay? Yeah, look at all the photos of guns I have. We'll put this back. Everybody knows that guns are really phalluses, so we're gonna go out and buy a phallus. <laughs> Toy one, of course. <laughs> I'll give you 20 bucks right around the corner on Bleecker Street. They're the toy store. Get a receipt for it. <laughs> that always gets a big laugh yeah. in art schools. In the past, I have cut out a piece of cardboard, a flat piece of cardboard, and then put my fingers around it and drawn it on tracing paper. Then you turn the tracing paper around, and that's like your right hand. That's how I've done it, but this is going to be better. That's Leon Golub. It's a great film. I think the uh, uh, thing I... It's, it's such a moving film in any way, but what the first scenes in there, you show the the, the art goers, the, the people at the museum, and focus on them. And that's one thing I think I learned from you in some of the films I've done, is to not just focus on the art or whatever the primary subject is, but how does it affect the people at the gallery? That experience it, So in, yeah. our, in our next clip, uh, jumping forward, we Gordon and I made a film together, actually, which was a great honor and thrill for me to work with you on a film, and it was really one of my, in some ways, my favorite film I've ever made, A Good Man. It's about the choreographer Bill T. Jones, and Gordon approached Keith, my partner, and I about collaborating on this project, uh, and it was just a tremendous opportunity, but similarly, we were very careful to shoot the audience of some of these performances because we wanted to say, as you had remarked to me many years earlier, well, you need to see how the audience, they are a character in your film, you know, and what, what's their reaction to this artwork? So um, let's just show, this is called A Good Man. It's a short clip from that film. I have dreams about working with him. I feel haunted. Push them, Shayla, push them, push them. Fear none of these things. Push them, push which them. Thou shalt this is not their home. This is my home. They're moving through. Make eye contact. You. It's about you. 
so we don't have this going on, right? I'll be someday a story they tell at dinner about a guy they worked with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he'll be vivid. Okay, and... Right, that's what I need it to be, but all three of you. And what his life was about is hopefully something that they can use. What is intellectual sloth? And what is the antidote to sloth? Maybe it's a bastard who asks you to do, 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 do. What can there be said? We are. So it's not just the pause. It's feeling it. Bill is on fire, and it's good, and it's bad sometimes, you know? He, um, he comes in with an urgency. Sometimes you're not ready for it. Do another type of song against it. Do the Scottish song against it. Or sometimes he comes in and we don't know where he is. And sometimes he shares it with us. This is what I'm feeling. This happened in the world today and I'm feeling this way. I'm really not feeling good and it's going to get worse this afternoon, okay? All right, you understand? But Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I do want to do a quick shout out to the, the team that worked on that. It was David Simpson who did the editing on that. Yeah. And Rachel Pakelny and Joanna Rudnick were the producers, and Keith Walker, my, my business partner, was the DP on that. So we had a great team of people. It was a great project. And, and you know, it's something that you give a lot of thought to, like putting the team together. Like when this project came along, it was like, I knew that there was gonna be a big performance. We had tried to do something with Ravinia a couple years earlier right. that didn't work out. Right. But I knew I wanted, like, you know, I shoot a lot of my old own films here. I wanted Keith to be the DP. I wanted someone who was at a level of these big theatrical kind of things would bring something to mm -hmm. it. And it was happening in New York. Bob and I would play tag team mm -hmm. uh, going to New York uh, to film what was going on and film the process. And so, you know, over the years, I've always given a lot of thought, who, how do we put the right team to get together mm -hmm. for this? And we had both worked with David, and it yeah. was like perfect to bring him in mm -hmm. uh, as, as the editor. Yeah, that was a great success. More recently, you did a film where you actually combined footage from the 63 boycott, the school issue, with a modern day equivalent and, and again weave this together and uh, it was a fascinating film because you, uh, you realize you have such an incredible archive you know from 1963 to 2014 or 2015 you know it's yeah just, I, I it's thought really, I shot the boycott in 63 I think you'll see a little of the archival right. here uh, you know I was a student and we had some friends in the civil rights movement who basically said to us, this is going to be a big deal. You guys are film guys. You've got to record it. And had we not done that, it would have been many. It was lost to history until I finally made this film. And the camera that all the sync, I don't know if there's any sync in this clip, but Bob mentioned these big cameras. I had a big 1,200-foot Oricon, the, the Oricon 1200. It was 50 pounds on a oh big wooden tripod <laughs> that I had in a Volkswagen minibus. And it was all shot out the door of that minibus. You know, you couldn't have possibly gotten it up on your shoulder. Not even Keith could have carried that. 
that camera. <laughs> you were wheeling the camera around in this minibus. Well, I had it on, you know. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow, I never heard that. So we'll show a short clip from that 63 boycott. The boycott was to be a learning experience. This is your future that you're fighting for. That's one of my white socks over the microphone for the win. I feel that segregation by school is all wrong. Why is it all wrong? Because why, why should your child go to a different school than my child? I feel that uh, my child, your child, should be able to go to the same school. I think I think it shouldn't be no mobile school, you No more what? No mobile school. It's too small. That day, it was all over the school. And we're going to go downtown and protest. And the next thing I know, we're in the march. On the day of the boycott, I was very concerned with the way I would look. I certainly would want either my gold chain or my pearls. I wanted to look like someone who should have an education. People marched from the north side, at the west side, the south side, and me to downtown. That's great, 63 boycott. Yeah. yeah. Rachel Dixon uh, produced this film with me and, and also the Kevin, who you're going to hear from, recent film. But one of the things that's in this film, which isn't in this clip, I mean, we found people who were in our footage to track down and it was a whole story about a website. Right, like the and yeah, woman yeah, that you yeah, showed we her. Found her in the, in, in the footage. And we, we had a website where people could ID. We had 500 pictures taken from the footage up there, and it was like Facebook. You could ID somebody and say, this is so-and-so, or this is me, and we were contacting people uh, that way. But uh, we also framed the film, as Bob was talking about, with what was going on in Chicago today. And Rachel had been shooting material about the school closings at that time. And we had also worked right. on the big school project the that school, we did. School and project. so we, we brought that into this film to kind of frame the story to show how little things had changed. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other thing about this film is that it's a half an hour. <laughs> it nice. could have easily been an hour. But we talked to a lot of teachers. We, start, we like to start the outreach and engagement uh, way before the film is finished. And one of the things that teachers were telling is, hey, you guys make these great movies, and we try to show them. But it's like, you know, 90 minutes, it's like a nightmare for us. What are we supposed, you know? So we really, we committed. We said, this is going to be a half-hour film because mm. uh, we wanted it shown in the schools. Oh, perfect. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you. We're going to uh, now bring up Kevin and Jenny. And Jeff, do you want to introduce them? First of all, a round of applause for Gordon Quinn. And Bob. Thank you. Thank you. You're staying, mister. <laughs> you don't get out that easy. But I want to bring up uh, Jenny Schiff to come up and uh, share how you met Gordon 
And we'll see the clip of finding Ying Ying first. Uh, you will take Bob's seat and have a conversation with the audience and also with Gordon. And I'm curious to have a look at Finding Ying Ying. If you're not familiar with that title, uh, it's quite an experience. I'll tell you, um, we did a doc talk show about Finding Ying Ying after doing more than 35 shows with mm. a variety of filmmakers. Mm. Because this is unique. And Jenny didn't start off making a film about a person named Ying Ying. She went to look for Ying Ying. And I just think this story is the most powerful thing. Your editor is here. Uh, and I know that Gordon is significant in your story. So let's have a look at the clip of Finding Ying Ying. And then Jenny, she, the filmmaker, will join us. And by the way, you may be hearing Jenny's voice on the track. April the 30th, 2017. University of Illinois is very beautiful. I feel a little bit lonely, but I still want to try. Ying Ying and I went to the same university in China. Just like Ying Ying, I felt lost in this foreign country. Police in downstate Urbana-Champaign are asking for help to find a visiting scholar from China who disappeared from the University of Illinois campus last Friday. Jing's father and boyfriend arrived in Chicago this morning. In this new country, I'm here and proud to tell you we will not give up until we find her. The search for a missing scholar from the University of Illinois is now expanding. She quickly went from a missing person to a possible kidnapping. I'm feeling a little anxious. I always put my faith in people to help find the way. I had to sit knowing that I was sitting next to the person who was responsible. Shocking revelation in court. I know that you picked her up. He was well-reviewed by his students. Nobody saw this coming. I have no time to be frustrated. There's only one thought in my mind, to try everything to find her. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me to be part of the event. And uh, I thought I was going to show a clip, but actually we showed a, like a trailer of the film. So, but I think it's good for those who like never heard of the film, like just providing the context. So basically, Funny is a film about a Chinese international student who went missing in the summer of 2017. And the whole film, we followed her family looking for her. And we also kind of um, really getting to know her, like who Ying was as a person. And uh, yeah, and Gordon, I, I just really appreciate all the help uh, and the, the mentorship I got from Gordon. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, I think I can kind of like talk about like how I first met Gordon. So I was actually a David Fellow, um, which is like a Cartoon's Diverse Voices in Docs Fellowship. Um, I was a fellow back in 2018. I think that was like when I graduated from Northwestern. I was a journalism student at the time. And uh, I think like there was a workshop for the fellowship. We talk about documentary ethics. 
And when I first started like making this film, I had like so many questions, like ethical questions, because I feel like I was kind of like following a, a family who was kind of devastated, uh, who was like very devastated and like trying to look for their missing daughter. And to me, as someone like never made documentary before and never really, you know, work on stories that about like a gr grieving family, I didn't really know how should I maintain my relationship with the film participants. So I remember like, I think after that workshop, I kind of like scheduled a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Gordon and talk about like the ethical questions like I had at that time. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you were concerned because you're the same age as their missing daughter. You were helping them with translations and all of that. And, and you saw that in some ways you were, you know, like a, a stand-in for the, your daughter. And you were really concerned about the ethics of that and were you exploiting them and all of those things. And we had a long conversation. And I remember it, I being incredibly impressed because basically what I said to you, there are no easy answers for the questions that you're asking, but you're asking all the right questions. When I get worried is when I see filmmakers not worrying about these kinds of ethical concerns, not asking those questions, because sometimes the, the answer isn't easy. And I thought you did a, a terrific job of, you know, over the year or so that you were making the film, years uh, of navigating that relationship. Uh, with the family and maintaining that relationship. Yeah. So just to give like just to give like more context of like the situation I was in when I first started making the film. Because I started like working on this story, not really like thinking about making like a feature film. I actually started with like I first heard about like Ying's disappearance as a Chinese international student. Because at that time, her disappearance was actually really huge. Uh, in the Chinese international student community in the U.S., and a lot of us were just like help, trying to helping the family out and try to search for her. So I think I started really started with like a volunteer like role, and then I started like picking picking up my camera and started filming. So to me, I think I struggled with like I'm wearing I was wearing like different hats. One is kind of like a volunteer, the other hat is like like a filmmaker probably trying to like make a film and the whether I started to ask myself like whether I was kind of like exploiting the like relationship with the family and take advantage of like you know like my role things like that so I think I was confused and uh, I feel like Gordon's like advice was very at the time was very crucial to the film actually because I think what I learned from that conversation actually guided me like throughout the upcoming like few years like until I finish this film and even for me right now I'm making like uh, more films I think I'm very like careful about the filmmaker and the film participants the relationship and also the power dynamic because yeah. I, I, I feel like I will feel really bad you know if the situation like went going to like a different totally wrong direction so yeah, so that's what I learned from Gordon. You know, the, the other thing from those early days, and, and John is here, the editor, and um, just a little note, it's like, Jenny wasn't going to be in the film. 
And little by little, it became clear that she had to play some kind of, her voice had to be in the film. She's also the voice of Ying Ying. And again, I think your initial plan was you were going to have somebody else do that. And John and I were both like, you know, you're absolutely perfect <laughs> to do it. And we, we, you know, and we were transparent, I think, with the audience that it, that it was your voice. But um, finding those few shots of you <laughs> to put into the film so people could like understand that you know because you weren't going to be you hadn't been filming yourself there were no shots of you uh, and sometimes how the story gets told what the point of view is evolves as the story unfolds yeah and also i think i want to mention that uh, for me like i never thought about like a being like a documentary filmmaker. And I think even for me, like studying, because I was born and raised in China, and I finished my college in China, and uh, I think it was like, maybe like at the beginning of like my senior year, I just made a decision very randomly that like I'm going to study abroad, coming to the US. And I went to journalism school at Northwestern. But at that time, I, st I was still thinking about maybe I'm gonna go back to China and take a like kind of a regular job. But then, I don't know, I feel like once, since I started like making funny Ying Ying, and I've been I had been working on it like for over like three years, the whole experience has totally like changed my perception of kind of like what I really want to do like in my life. And uh, if you ask me like five years ago, uh, ask me like what I would do like in the you know next five years, I would never think about like I would actually like be here like actually pursuing a career path as like a documentary filmmaker. Because I think for me, like making documentaries like really make my life like more meaningful. So I think this is something I feel like I'm really passionate about like in my life, yeah. Yes. You know, I, I think that uh, one of the things, and, and maybe you could talk about that a little bit, that you see in Finding Ying Ying is a real, it has a lot to tell American audiences about China, and there's a lot, I think, for China to learn about America if it's, if it's shown there. Yeah, so it actually also related to like, I think what I want to do, like what type of film I want, really want to make in the future. Because I feel like every time for, for American audience, like when we talk about China, there's a certain expectation or certain perception of what China look like. And I think for the Chinese audience, when, you know, talk, when we talk about America, there's a certain perception of what the US look like. But that's not like really the case. So for me, like in the future, I really want to make more films, uh, I mean like China related or about Chinese American, like in the U.S., so to really create like a mutual understanding, you know, between the two country, like I mean Chinese people and Americans, and also just provide like different perspectives, Be because again, I really feel like right now the documentaries or like the basically films that we seen about China are not really accurate. So I think I'm just working on that. Yeah. I want to bring up. Kevin Shaw, thank you, Jenny, so much. I appreciate your willingness to share these experiences that you've had because they were life-changing. Other people have had life-changing experiences because they had the opportunity to find a mentor and someone who would actually listen and take 
their work seriously, even though they may not have the credits that a larger company might be looking for. Uh, Gordon's always been an amazing listener and a generous spirit. So I wanted to turn it over to Kevin after we take a look at the trailer or the link that you actually sent us a clip from the film. Well, we're gonna see an actual clip from Kevin's film, which is sold out the last few nights, I believe last night and the night before at the Cisco in the Doc 10 film series, right? And so that's a pretty big venue. And for people to leave home and to go sit close together in a big venue says a lot about the importance of this particular film. And you'll see an echo of history very quickly in here, which I think Gordon will appreciate. And I know it helped you guys discuss what possibilities there were for this project, which as a, a documentary filmmaker, you have to know, these are like wrestling a shark and a tiger at the same time. Uh, you're in so many different strange ethical, financial, and artistic problems when you go down these paths that it takes a community to do it. So let's have a look at this clip from Let the Little Light Shine, and then you'll hear from Kevin. Saw in the meeting room the CEO, Janice Jackson, and the director of employee engagement. And on that particular day, I had a Black Students Matter shirt on. So she looked at the shirt and she said, you know, we've given you a lot of chances. We've been really patient with you. Everyone that we've talked to about you has said that you're a really great principal, you're a great person. But at this point, it's really hard for me to believe that you're not coordinating and collaborating with your parents to fight against this school action. And she pointed to my shirt and she said, I mean, right now you're wearing a shirt that is from an organization that is obviously anti-CPS. And I was taken aback a little bit by that statement because I don't see the shirt as an opposition to Chicago Public Schools. I see it as something that Chicago Public Schools ought to clearly advocate for and support. What they were experiencing and what we were all witnessing together was a movement of parents devoted to saving their school. And Dr. Jackson said, yeah, but you can't be part of that movement. I said, I'm not part of that movement. I'm part of the NTA community, but I'm not the one leading parents in their efforts to try and save the school. Dr. Jackson and the lawyer there asked me to put my official statement in writing in response to the allegations that I was coordinating and orchestrating the parent opposition to the plan, which I did. We made an agreement before we did this action that today we're not getting arrested. I still have not yet heard from CPS. Today, we got out the street voluntarily. In a minute, you want to be like, we ain't getting out the street. Oh, we're trying to have the street. Get out. Get out. You got to take your mind out of, we 
What's up, Gordon? How you doing, man? <laughs> How you doing, Kevin? It's been a while, man. Yeah. It's been a while that we've been able to share some space together, so, so it's good. Um, I think back to what, just the general idea of what makes a good mentor, right? And to me, it's kind of like somebody that uh, does it just off of their own volition, you know? Like you're just spending some time with someone and you're imparting your, your knowledge because, you know, you're not getting paid to do it. You're just doing it. It's just something that you like to do. You love filmmaking and what have you. And so, you know, I didn't ask you to be a, a, a mentor of mine. Uh, that just kind of happened over, over the course of, of getting to, to know you, you know. I think back, you know, I did a movie back in 2010. I'm not sure if you remember this, but uh, it's called The Street Stops Here. It was a movie mm -hmm. that was in, uh, was it with PBS and eventually ESPN, a, a right. more of a sports documentary. Yeah. And I remember the production company back then was like, man, if we could get Gordon Quinn to write a little something, if you could watch it and maybe give us a little, a little, you know, tagline we could put on our, uh, <laughs> put on our poster or whatever, that would be the best. And uh, you did watch it. And I, I think you, you might have even gave us something but you definitely gave us some notes which yeah. was <laughs> that's a, yeah that's an occupational habit I always even when it's finished I'm like oh I got a note uh, yeah but it was great I mean to, to, to have that happen at that age at that time frame was was uh, tremendous you know I'll get nerdy for a little bit if people I'm sure know Star Wars or what have you and to me you know you're like you're like the, the Yoda of, of documentary filmmaking, okay? So to get any knowledge from you is like, you know, I, I, I'm just taking it all in. I'm a, I'm a sponge. And one little note, too, that I remember from that day, you know, my, my background was primarily, before then, was in television, in television production and in sports TV. And, you know, a lot of the um, camera people that I would work with, uh, they weren't the best verite camera people, you know, and so you're they're filming always standing up and they're kind of looking down on on the on the scenario on people or what have you, because that's just, you know, they don't want to sit down or whatever. Why would I sit down like I feel better standing up or what have you? And I remember one of the, the things you talked about in terms of shooting in a classroom and it was about being on the level and the point of view of the students there and uh, hey, pull up a chair and get on the same level as them, and you want to film from that perspective. And um, that just really sat with me because I know that if I had hired a, a camera person and we were, I was directing a scene, um, and that person wasn't a verite camera person, they probably would have filmed it, you know, standing up, looking down on a scenario and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, those are, it's two of my most common things. Get on eye level with people, unless you have a reason not to be, and pay attention to the person who's listening. Yes, yes. Don't always be that on the person. Way. Sometimes when I run a, a workshop for a camera, I'll say, okay, let's create a little drama. Somebody's breaking up with someone. Who's you want to follow with the camera? The person who's being broken up to. Mm -hmm. That's where the emotion's going to be. Right. So those are, yeah. Right. But the other thing that has always been important, I think it's in the Cartemquin ethos. It's in, you know, let the little light shine. I'm interested in helping you make the film that you want to make, not 
kind of take a set of rules or ways of doing, you know, and make the film that I would have made. Right. You know, that's that's what we, you know, Jenny's film, no one else could have made that film. It's it's her film. Your film is incredibly powerful and special, and it's it's your film, your vision. How do we help people realize their vision? Right. Well, I appreciate that. You know, you're you're instrumental in the making of the film. Um, you know, as we were wrapping up America to Me, uh, the NTA saga, basically, it's a high-performing elementary school in the South Loop. There's a transition plan to change it into a high school uh, that would benefit the neighborhood's wealthier residents, and then at the same time, displacing the traditional, uh, the original student population there. Um, and as that story was unfolding, um, you know, I, I was brought aware to it and I went to you and I said, hey, do you think this is a, a potential story worth following? And I remember sending you an email on it and you were like, oh, no doubt, you know? <laughs> you were enthusiastic about it and you were like, you know, you should, um, you should, you should apply to the, to the DIVID program, the Cartemquin Diverse Voices and Documentary Program because that might help you workshop it and, and um, build your grant applications and all that kind of stuff, which it did. I think the film is going to be an inspiration to the whole movement and struggle around public education in this country because it actually, it's not like you came in at the tail end to pick it up. Right. You were there at the beginning in the struggle when a lot of people didn't think they could win. Right, right. And, and you know, you had some great advice as we were filming uh, throughout the course of that whole time frame. Uh, yeah, obviously, it is not a project that uh, the district is going to give a filmmaker uh, permission to film. <laughs> and I remember you saying, well, you know, you should still do it and maybe you can uh, ask for forgiveness later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so that's exactly what we yeah. are doing right now. <laughs> Asking for forgiveness later. No, but uh, I, I just remember all, all the great advice that you gave to us as we were bringing certain scenarios. Um, and then obviously with the edit, I, I wanted to wait to show you the edit until I really felt it was in a, a, a you know, I'm not going to say perfect place, but a place where I felt like it was really, really strong. And um, so when, when I was able to finally show it to you, probably this year, I think, yeah, right? Earlier yeah. this, the beginning of this year. You, you were um, close to done, but I had notes. Oh, yeah, you had notes. That was great. And we, you know, I was like, yep, yep, yep. Okay, that's a good note. That's a good note. And you're like... Uh, I'm 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 hungry for some for an education scene right here. You know I'm starving for it because the, yeah, this, that, yeah, and that third. Was yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know I I ended up adding another scene of of some education going on in the school based off of off of that note. I'm like man I'm I'm just getting killed on my my uh, running time here and PBS <laughs> just gonna kill me. But you know it was a good note that I that you know definitely had to add for sure. I appreciate you, Gordon. You're a good, you know, you, you are a uh, treasure to this community for sure. And, um, you know, if there's filmmakers out here who are looking for um, advice, there's no better person to go to and no better resource. Well, who has a question? Anybody? Um, you talked about, like, um, adapting storytelling techniques to the story, like going from not having a narrator to having a narrator 
Do you ever question if you're making the right choice and like how do you go about it? Uh, in, in a sense, there's two answers to that. One is, yeah, you're always questioning it, you know, and kind of Jenny described some of that, how she was questioning herself and her relationship to her subjects. And, but the other side of it is like, no, you've got to have confidence in the decisions that you make and be ready to know that you're going to make some mistakes. And what I always say to people is the important thing about making a mistake is to own it, to know you did it, acknowledge it, admit it, and own it and and learn from it. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's that's what I love though about, and I you know for many years uh, and I know Kevin understands this. You know you've worked for a lot of clients, filming you know corporate video, industrials, whatever. Uh, I did very few commercials in my time, but I've done a few, and it's like, particularly like industrials. I used to love doing that. You're in a place, you know, we did work for McDonald's. We're in the French fry factory. I'm learning all about the, how they do it. We're doing corporate video. I'm learning how they think. I'm, I'm in a culture and learning about that culture. I've done things around medicine over the years. You're in the culture of medicine. And it's why I realized that I really never wanted to go into feature filmmaking because the story, the creative, the art, there's a lot of challenges there. But the culture you're in is the culture of making feature films. You know, there's a joke about how do you know when a teamster's dead? You know, he dropped his donut. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, but when you make a documentary, you're in a whole new culture that you're trying to make sense of. You can see it in Let the Little Light Shine. You're in this school, and I don't know how many schools you were in over the years that were that good. You're in a school that you're trying to understand, you're trying to understand the parents' relationship to that school, and you've never experienced that before. So that's what I find so exciting about it. Beautiful. Any other questions for Gordon? I see a hand up here. Yeah, it seems like you could do revisions forever on a film, so my, my question is, where do you draw the line between a rough cut and a fine cut? And where do you draw the line, you know, where the film is done and it's time to move on to the next one? You know, we have uh, John here. I was an, an editor for many years, and I'm now that irritating person sitting behind the editor saying, you know, that could be a little shorter there, you know, and I used to have that person behind me. Uh, but one of the most important things about editing is to know when you've turned the corner. Uh, and I sometimes see people who like, you know, they're, they're trying to go back and it's like, you know, it's like, it's, it's like the Robert Frost poem, you know, it's like I came to a fort and I took a road and that made all the difference and you don't go back. So you do, you rework things, all of those kind of things happen, but you also just have to have that confidence to say, I know this could be a different film, you know, and it, it used to be when we edited film, it was a lot harder to go back. When I was an assistant editor, I literally had to reconstitute uh, the, you know, the, the work print that had been cut apart. And in the earliest years, I was working before the guillotine spicer, they, we were using hot splicers, so you'd lose uh, a frame and a half, and you'd have to put that frame and a half back in as a little piece of black leader and splice all, it was a nightmare, you know? So you didn't go back that much, you know? Now with the Abbott, it's like, boink, and you go back, 
<laughs> you know, so, but I think that discipline, actually, of learning to edit that way was, was pretty helpful. Any other questions? Oh, here. So when, when stories are coming to your attention, um, is there a certain spark that makes you choose one over the other, or does it depend on each individual case? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't know, you know. Sometimes there's circumstance. Um, I did a film 10 years ago with Howard Reich, uh, the, you know, the Tribune uh, jazz critic, about his mother called Prisoner of Her Past. And I never thought that I would wind up doing a story with a Holocaust theme. Uh, and Howard had done this big part in the newspaper. And I, you know, when he, I'd read the story, I didn't really think about it. And then when he brought it, to, it was like, oh yeah, we're right in the first meeting, it's like, we're gonna do this. You know, there was something about it. Uh, and I remember when J.J. Hanley, uh, the woman who brought uh, refrigerator mothers to us, and she had had a autistic child. It's a film about the mothers of autism who were told, said that they were cold like refrigerators. That's what caused the autism. All discredited, all wrong. And these women had never had their story told. I had been at the University of Chicago with Bettelheim, the guy who promulgated this. I knew a lot about the story. I even knew one of the women who winds up being in our film was somebody that I knew, the mother of an autistic child. I never thought of it as a film until JJ came in the door. She'd been researching it for two years, you know, and she kind of like, a film needs to be made about this, and it was just like, oh yeah, I get it. But I didn't see it myself, even though I knew a lot about the story. So, you know, there's a lot of intangibles uh, that, that go into it. Well, thank you all, and I want to um, wrap up by um, saying that there are a lot of different lessons you can glean from tonight. And in the very beginning, when this idea was just sparking, um, there was a real problem in the country, and that problem still exists today, and it's a lack of spaces like this. A lack of places where you can have a substantive conversation with good people about topics and art that are close to people's hearts. Where do you go for this? I didn't know. I wanted to figure it out. I called Gordon. I said, I think we should be doing something on a regular with food and drink because we all need it now more than ever. We want to continue to grow the community with new voices. And this was a real testament to you, Gordon, tonight. Because I was one of those kids who came, didn't know anybody, and met you at a screening in 1985 of a documentary long before Netflix and Sundance and the place that you would see documentaries was PBS, period. There weren't festivals lined up to buy the work or even show the work of documentary filmmakers. Gordon and I met at a screening where there might have been 10 people. It was at a nonprofit organization called Chicago Filmmakers. It still exists. Yeah. Right? Any of you involved know about it? So. Gordon and I met, he didn't make that film, I had nothing to do with it, and we got to talking, just like you get to talk to each other at the Doc Talk show. He invited me to come see what he does at a place called Kartemquin, I couldn't remember the name, got the address, showed up. <laughs> when I got there, he uh, poured me a cup of hot tea, asked me what I'm doing, I told him about a documentary that I was in the process of making about Harold Washington and an integrated college in a segregated city. Gordon 
actually looked me in the eye and said, that sounds very interesting. Um, have, you, have you done it yet? And I said, no, I'm just starting out. I'm starting to film. I have access to the mayor. And he said, oh, that's very cool. And let me show you some of the stuff we're doing. He literally went into a room and pulled out a 16 millimeter projector brought it over to another room and told me to come sit in this room while he threaded the last Pullman car, which you saw a clip of tonight, on a projector, which I got to watch with a cup of tea from Gordon and then had a nice conversation. That's a life changer. Somebody validated the thought I had for a project. Somebody said, that's a good idea. Let's talk about what you know, is possible and let me show you what we've been doing. Uh, that made a huge impression on me. And you're looking at somebody who didn't come from Chicago, didn't study documentary film, and didn't have film experience. I worked in Hollywood and grew up in LA and worked at MGM and at Universal and as a gopher for Norman Lear's company. Some of you know Norman Lear. And also as a location manager for Chuck Barris. This is the <laughs> alpha and omega of entertainment and television. Chuck Barris. The guy who created the dating game, the newlywed game, and the gong show. The gong show was great. I was actually accredited on that film as a location manager. I'm very proud of that. But I want you to know that when you come to Chicago, after having that kind of background, and you walk into an old house on Wellington, and really start to think about that over the years, as you observe what happens in that house, and the many people who've come through and met Gordon as I did, you will never forget that, and you'll appreciate it as long as you live. And I certainly do, Gordon. So thank you so much for just extending a hand and being that way to everybody who's come through Chicago who's called on you. So thank you, well, and thank you all for being here. Yeah, and, and thank you, Jeff. <laughs> you know, when, uh, when you were talking, it made me think, in that old BA paper of mine from the 60s, one of the things I talk about was something that was very important to John Dewey, which was face-to-face -face communication. We're in a medium where people look at screens. And one of the things that I say is screens are a stepping stone to bringing people into face-to-face -face communication. It's, it's another level of complexity. So it's great that you bring people together, Jeff. All right, now I can go, right? <laughs> you may go. You are free to leave. If you'd like to find out more about the Chicago documentary community, you can visit thedocdoctalkshow.com, all one word, presented by Groundswell Educational Films. The events take place once a month, and you can find a great deal of enriching content on their website. Please join us next time on Rhythm of Life as I sit down with journalist, author, and teacher John Marshall to discuss his latest book, Clash, Presidents and the Press in Times of Crisis. Marshall's book explores the political, economic, social, and technological forces that have shaped the relationship between U.S. presidents and the press during times of crisis. In addition to Trump's presidency, Clash examines those of John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. 
you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. Leave us a rating and review so more people can hear about us and share about Rhythm of Life on social media and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Steve Ordauer. This has been a Rhythm and Light production.